Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to uh, open that up to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4 is where we find ourselves this morning as we can continue and, uh, and draw near to the end of our time in this, uh, this letter of Paul's. If you don't have a Bible, as always, we have one available for you on the, uh, the rack in the, uh, near the back of the room. If you would uh, like to have one, you can just slip your hand up. We'll make sure we get one in your hands. And um, if you're not comfortable with that, just find someone around you who's already opened up there and take their Bible and uh, make them do it. Um, uh, but as we continue our time in Philippians, um, um, I have to make a confession. Uh, this was a tough week for me, uh, just personally. This was a tough week um, uh, dealing with, um, not dealing with, um, just helping, uh, grieving with friends. You know, the Bible calls us to uh, to mourn with each other as the body of Christ, and uh, and just I've got some friends that have some stuff going on in their life, and they shared some of that with me, and it just broke my heart, and um, uh, just it's been a week, it's been a week, and uh, and yet I look forward to all week. I've, I've looked forward to gathering here because there's something about coming together with the body of Christ that. Uh, has a way of melting all of those things away. There is encouragement found here. There is love found here. There is, uh, there is joy found here. And I hope you feel that as well. Uh, I found it so appropriate, not even planned, uh, but the, the psalm that we read in Psalm 6, and then even that hymn we just sang, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. What a what a truth and encouragement it is to know that, that Jesus doesn't pass us by. Uh, that when he um, has said that he is with us, he will never leave us or forsake us. Uh, that's his word, and he is true to his word. Uh, we just need call on him, and he will find us. And so I'm excited uh, and refreshed uh, for this morning and uh, maybe you were like me, and you've just had a week. Uh, let this time just, just be a time of rest for you and rejuvenation as we look at God's word together. Philippians 4, hopefully you've turned there. Just three short verses. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown... Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Pray with me. God, again, just we ask that you would be with us as we study your word. God, I ask that you would reveal it to us and convict us where we need conviction and, and build us up where we need strengthening, Father, and, and shape us and mold us. May we not just read these as uh, uh, words on a page. God, this is your word. 
given to us for our good and our benefit, for our instruction, for our rebuking, for our edification, Father. We know that it is living and active and able to be worked out in all seasons and, and areas and places of life. And so, God, we, we treat this as if you are here before us, speaking to us face to face. God, may I not say anything that is contrary to your word as you have given it. God, I ask that you would speak through me. God, use me as your mouthpiece this morning. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing unto you as we consider what you have for us this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to get right into it this morning because of time and because um, uh, there's some important things to look at. Now, you may read this and go, it's three little verses. That's not a lot. Surely he's not going to go real long on three little verses. But, oh, my friends, (laughs) I'm kidding. Not really. He, He uses this phrase, therefore, and we've looked at this before. In chapter 2, and, and we've asked the question, is, it was always a question that I was given uh, in, in school, is what is the therefore, therefore? And we're not going to go back and, and look at everything possible, but, but really there's two possible reasons, two conclusions you can arrive at in uh, this uh, opening of this chapter. He, he, he uses it as a summary of the previous chapter, of chapter 3, right? He, he, he gives this really deep uh, uh, exposition of uh, what a life in Christ looks like versus uh, kind of a former life that he had. And, and he, he goes on and on about um, having a righteousness uh, 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 through faith in Christ and, and straining towards a goal, right? He's, he admits he's not perfect yet. He admits he's not there yet. And, and he challenges us to think the same way. And then he, he even gives the invitation, right? He says to, to imitate him, to, to do what he does, to mimic or to mock what he's doing. But then the other thing that, that really could be um, uh, understood with this, this therefore, this transitional statement is, is just that, is that it's a transitional statement into the next section. It's a stepping stone uh, for what comes next. That's often said sometimes in conversation, right? We we say things like thus, or, um, or, or, or in conclusion, or, or, or just some kind of a transitional statement because of that. And really, I think it's both. I think the therefore that we're reading here in verse 1 really is, uh, it can be read uh, as, as a summary of chapter 3. And actually, I would even offer that it's not just a summary of chapter 3, that really it's a summary of the entire book. Because if you look at the last uh, statement he makes there in verse 1, he says, stand firm thus in the Lord. That's what he's said all along. He's repeated that phrase or some version of it many, many times in this letter. But also, as we we look and consider at this paragraph, these few verses, Paul's transition here gets very, very intimate very quickly. He gets very personal again, very quickly, and it's, it's a callback, if you will, to chapter 1, where he opens up his letter, right? In, in chapter 1, you see him use language uh, that is very intimate, very personal, 
And see, here he says things like, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, my beloved. He opens his letter this same way, expressing his deep fondness and affection for the church. And it's, I think it's appropriate as he opens up his letter expressing this, and he's laid out a lot of doctrine, a lot of truth, a lot of theology uh, in between. And now he's closing his letter in the same way. He's saying, I love you. I'm for you. I long for you. Like, that's, that's deep and affectionate stuff. And he, he reaffirms them in their walk with the Lord. And he even says that it was his joy and his crown, his heavenly reward and his pleasure to see them love and follow Jesus, right? That's what, he, that's what he's saying here when he says, you know, I, I love and I long for my joy and my crown. Because I read that, I, I wondered, like, have I ever felt that about someone? I ask you the same thing, like, like, have you ever felt that way about someone? Have you ever had someone in your life where you've said it's been my joy and my crown, my, my, my ultimate treasure to see you love and follow Jesus. See, Paul here has this level of intimacy and relationship with the plants, the, the church plants that he, that he has. And he, he says almost the same thing when he writes to the letter at, uh, at Thessalonica and, and Thessalonians. And, and we see in Ephesians that that, uh, that Paul has intimacy there too. In fact, if you look at Acts, as, as Paul is ending his journey, and he's on his way to Jerusalem where ultimately he's going to face persecution and then later go to Rome and face death, like the Ephesian brothers there, like they weep over him. Like I don't just weep over strangers. I weep over those whom I long for, whom I'm affectionate towards. Paul here has a deep, deep affection and his joy and his crown again they express the significant impact that this work has had on his life like he, he's genuinely enjoyed and looked forward to the grind of ministry the grind of sharing the gospel the the, the daily hard plowing that it is to see people come to know jesus like, in my life, I've prayed things like this. Like, God, let me just be old enough to experience marriage. Like, God, let me just make it far enough to have kids. God, let me just make it far enough to, to visit a place. I'd like to go to uh, several parts of Europe one day. Let me have the time to do that. God, let me have the time to do this thing. Like, those would be joyful for me. Those would be achievements that I would long to have. Maybe you've prayed similar prayers like that. I think we all probably have at some point. Paul's prayer is very different. You know what Paul's joy and crown was? The prayer that he prays? God, let me see them saved. God, take me to this town where I can share the gospel with somebody and see someone saved. God, after they're saved, God, give me enough time to see them, see them grow, see them mature, see them love you. 
And then after that, maybe he prays a little bit more. He says, God, give me time to see them disciple others, to tell others what God's done in their life, what you've done in their life. God, give me time to see the churches planted and multiplied and gone out. Like, that's Paul's joy and crown. And even as I read that and thought about it, like, that's a lot different than my joy and crown. Not that marriage isn't great, not that kids aren't great, not that careers or vacations or any of those things aren't okay. But man, what a difference it is to say that my joys are in the experiential things of life and Paul's joys are in the gospel going out. Do we feel that same joy in our lives? Like, is it true of us that we can say to someone or about someone, it has been my joy and my crown that I have had a role in their life where they have come to know Christ, they are loving Him, they are following Him, they are seeing others uh, uh, come as well to know Jesus. Like, I wonder what it would be like if that was our attitude. I wonder what it would be like in our city and in our neighborhood and in our workplace. If we approached every day saying, it is my joy today to wake up. God, to glorify you and to see someone saved. What a difference. What a difference. He then again says, stand firm. We've, we've seen this phrase again too. It's funny how at the end of his letter again, he's, he's stating things he has stated all along. And remember his audience. We covered this a long time ago in chapter 1. His audience are former military. Like they, they're former military or they're athletes, one of the two. But, but Philippi was really settled after uh, kind of the, the civil war that happened in Roman history. Philippi is settled by a lot of retired former military people. And so he says, stand firm. We've even considered what that means, what that looks like. That standing firm to a soldier, when you say stand firm, what they hear is stand your post, right? Stand your ground. Don't move. Regardless of what happens, you're here, be here. And so in light of all that he said in chapter 3 and, and even further, chapter 2 and chapter 1, like the challenge is clear and stated, stand firm. But not just stand firm in the Lord. Like stand firm in Jesus. Put all of your affections your concentration, your life in Jesus. When, when things seem rough, when things, things seem rocky, when, when you're having a difficult time in life, when things just aren't going well, stand firm in Jesus. When you're finding yourself struggling with sin, when you're finding yourself wrestling with, with temptation, stand firm in Jesus. If you start to feel your affections, your, your, your mindset, your heart set be pulled away from things of Jesus, stand firm in Jesus. Because this is the only way that we have life. He has said that repeatedly over and over and over again. 
And then he transitions. He transitions, and he talks to a couple of people specifically, which Paul doesn't do that often. Look in verse 2. He says, I entreat Eudia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So obviously, there's something going on in the church in Philippi. We have a couple of ladies here who are at odds with one another. They're, they're going through some stuff, having a, a disagreement. And what Paul is doing here, it's, a, it's kind of a real-life example of everything that he's talked about, of everything that he has said about unity and about the church operating together and functioning well together. Well, here he is now uh, putting some meat on the bones, so to speak, of what it is he's talking about. It's a callback to chapter 2, verse 2, where again he reminds us that the goal of the church is unity, to be of the same mind, having the same heart, and one singular mindset, and that is Jesus. And he uses a phrase here, a, a word here. He says, I entreat, Eudia. Your translation might say, urge. This word here in Greek is the word uh, parakaleo. And it means beseech or urge it's a it's a strong desire it, it's communicating a a sense of urgency it's communicating a a, um, a a necessity to be done we don't know what the specific reason for the disagreement is we don't know what specifically they're uh, arguing about we know that it's significant enough because paul mentions it right he he calls them out and he says Listen, agree in the Lord. Get along. Find unity again. And so I don't want us to get too hung up on, well, what were they arguing about? There's been a lot of conjecture formed over the years about what it is they're arguing about. Well, that's not important. Paul doesn't mention it. What is important, though, what he does mention are a couple things. One, he mentions them by name. And that's a... Uh, that's a nod to their importance and the role in which they play in that church. We'll get there in a little bit. But he does mention there's a problem. And so because of that, it needs to be addressed. It's not significant to be named what the problem is. But you can see here, Paul is, is speaking earnestly to use language like, I entreat, I urge, I implore, I beg you. Like, that's, that's deep. That's deep. I'm so glad in our day and time, we don't deal with stuff like that at all. Like, I'm glad that we don't have any sort of bickering or arguing or squabbles that happen amongst Christians today. Right? No, of course we do. Of course we do. James 4 um, although we don't have the specific reason for this argument, James 4 gives us some general reasons for arguing amongst the body. Starting in verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, the Greek word for passions really, really means uh, desires, your pleasures, your sin. 
Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with, of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. Sounds a lot like stand firm, doesn't it? And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And then James gives this encouragement. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. For the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver. And judge, and he is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge a neighbor? Now you can read that and, and hear that and say, that's right, who are you to judge me? But what, what James is actually saying here is that if you are so caught up on, on pointing out other people's junk, you're forgetting that you yourself have your own junk. And just like Jesus said, like, Look at the log in your eye before you examine the speck in someone else. Like realize, church, that we have sin in our lives. And when we are tuned into that sin, when we are seeking that sin, when we are loving that sin, that begins to infect the fellowship. That begins to work itself out within the body of Christ. You know, Satan loves a good disagreement within the body. Like Satan loves to take what, what, what seemingly could even be something petty and silly, and he likes to let it fester and grow until it becomes a, a, a gossip hub. And slander begins to go out amongst the body about individuals, things that aren't even true or remotely true. But because of disagreements and squabbling and sin at the root of it, we find dissension and difficulty. Now again, we don't know why these two ladies are at odds. But I imagine that maybe it's true that some of that is why. And Paul says to stop. He begs them, please agree in the Lord. 
See there, the Greek word here, we see, we've seen it in 2.5, it's phroneo. It says, it means set your minds to, and it's, it's a tricky word because there's, there's a relationship between the knowledge that you have in your head and, and the, the gut feeling that you have just, just down inside of you. Like, and we don't have an English word for that, but, but that's what phroneo means. It's to set your minds to. That, that there's this relationship in between your guts and your brain. And, and there has to be an equal level of head knowledge, what we know God's word says, and a gut feeling and how we apply that knowledge in our lives for us to exist as a church. Like if we are going to be in relationship with one another, if we are going to be in community with one another, we have to take God's word seriously. We have to know what it says, but then we have to let it work itself out in our lives. It's why I've titled this sermon an example of disunity because here Paul has spent three chapters talking about what it means to be a body of Christ, what it means to love Jesus with all that you have, right, to live as Christ, what it means to work and, and labor hard for the gospel. And then he calls out two people by name who aren't doing that and how dangerous that is to the witness of the church. See, Paul's challenge in, in chapter 2, verse 2, is significant here, again, to be of the same mind, the same heart, with one singular mindset, that is Jesus. If that is not at the core of who we are as a church, if Jesus is not at the very center of all that we do, all that we believe, all that we practice, like, we are so easily going to fall into this trap of bickering, arguing and dissension and squabbles because our sin will then take over like right if we're not pursuing Jesus we're pursuing something else and then that sin begins to fester in our lives and Satan then lets it fester in our church now that doesn't mean that everything will be rosy and happy and rainbow and smiles but what it does mean, though, is that even in those times when, when disagreements happen, and they happen, believe me, they happen. When things are centered on Jesus, we can find unity even in that disagreement. And then most of the time, we find resolution to it. I see, when Jesus and the gospel are what is most important, Everything else is easy to settle because it's all about him. But what if there's times where it's not? Well, Paul addresses that too. Look in verse 3. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers <clears throat> whose names are in the book of life. Paul implores and employs. It's the same language. He says, yes, I ask you also to help these women. He employs and implores a, a fellow believer to mediate between the two ladies. 
And again, you see the urgency here. Like, like Paul wants reconciliation for these women. He wants them to, to come to, to a resolution uh, agreement at some point. Because again, like squabbles don't help anyone. And they damage the church, both internally and externally. Like if, if, if the outside world sees churches that all they seem to do is bicker and argue and not get along and fight and descend and split, like what message does that send about the goodness of the gospel of grace? And so Paul wants this settled. But sometimes we recognize it takes outside help. Like sometimes we recognize it is okay to get some help. And we shouldn't be afraid to seek that help or seek the input of others. Like for a long time, the idea of counseling was such a taboo thought. Counseling is a fantastic grace of God because it helps reveal some things about yourself that maybe you didn't know or recognize. So we shouldn't be afraid to seek the help and input of others because they might see a perspective that we don't see. And so in the bickering, in the disputes, in the arguments, take a step back and ask someone you trust who's not a yes man. Don't go ask your friends and family and and get those that you know will agree with you. Ask a third party. Say, will you just shed some light on this? Will you give some wisdom to this? Let them help you. But then he continues. He says, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. Labored side by side with me. Two things to consider here. The first really answers the question why should we care? Like, why should we care that these two women are having a disagreement? Like, let them have their agreement, disagreement, and get on with life. We care immensely, or we should care immensely. One, again, because it, it reflects on the church as a whole. But then two, because these are sisters in Christ. Like these are those that have been called, as he says, like their names are written in the book of life. These are sisters that have been called by Jesus. They're fellow believers and fellow, fellow laborers of the gospel. And he even celebrates and affirms their salvation in the gospel work in which they've participated in. And he uses a phrase like true companion. And see, really, the, the whole church, although he, he employs one specific person, like he's written this letter to everyone to read. And so he employs the whole church, like, help them. They are sisters, they're part of your fellowship. Like, you should care immensely about them. If you've been part of our Sunday school the last couple of weeks, like, we've talked about this stuff as. The, the importance of what it means to be a member of a church and the importance of discipline and the importance of reconciliation amongst the body of Christ. Like, here it is. Like, we should care immensely about seeing our brothers and sisters who are caught in a disagreement come to reconciliation, to resolution. 
It's not just a, we'll let them have their moment and we'll move on. No, we as the church care immensely about them because that is always the goal is reconciliation. And, and notice I said reconciliation, not just pragmatism. Like we don't want to just settle it for whatever's easiest for everybody. Because whatever's easiest for everybody may not be what is best for the gospel witness that we're trying to proclaim. And so we don't want to just do what's easy. We want to seek the Lord and be reconciled. But then there's another thing to consider here. And this is where we're going to camp out for just a minute. Because this is a really tricky part of this section. And I understand that and hearing it could be offensive for some individuals. And hear me, I don't mean it to be offensive. I'm communicating God's word as it is written and given to us. And so I ask, like, if you have an issue, like, just email me. We'll talk through it. We'll work through it. But um, here it is. This section has been used as evidence for the egalitarian argument that women pastors and elders can exist in a church. And even in today's time, like, this is a hot-button issue for the church today. You talk about arguing and disagreeing, like, this will get it going. And even within our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, like, this has come up many, many times in recent days and months and years. And we're even tracking towards a, a kind of generic acceptance of that view. But, but look at what Paul is actually doing here. We have to be critical and read what's happening. I see some of the argument and the evidence that's given is, well, Paul addresses the overseers and the deacons. And then he names these women by name. And so surely they have some significance in the church to be named after the, the address of chapter 1. And see, to be named like they were, like it would show some level of prominence, right? He's named others in other letters who had prominence, and he's naming them. So see, there it is. They're the pastors in Philippi. I want to be clear and careful, as clear as I can be, because again, I know that this might be offensive for some. I don't think they're being named as pastors here. In fact, I don't think at all that they are pastors here. There's two, two um, evidences of that that I want to just point out quickly. One is, is a biblical continuity of the text. God's word will not will not contradict itself. It does not contradict itself. And so in several passages, Paul addresses this very issue, the office, the specific role of elder and overseer, bishop, pastor. It's all the same word. He addresses this and says, it is to be distinctly held by a male. Now, you might say, well, gosh, that sounds awfully sexist. It's not at all sexist. It's by God's design. 
And if you have a problem with that, take it up with the Lord. Again, you're free to email me all you'd like, but it's by God's design. The other thing, though, that, that, that is often so funnily overlooked in, in thinking about continuity and thinking about what, what, what Paul would write in his letters is he's writing this letter to the church at Philippi. And, and we know that the most famous kind of passage is, is uh, 1 Timothy 2, right, where he says that a, a woman should be silent in the church. And she has no role in teaching there. And he writes that to Timothy, but like years and years after he writes this letter, which maybe I remind you, Timothy is present while Paul is writing this letter. Like Timothy is there with Paul in jail as Paul pins this letter to the church at Philippi. Now, it would seem awfully odd to me that Paul would first affirm women pastors in Philippi and then later write to Timothy hey, that's not okay. Like, that's a contradiction. And again, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It just doesn't make sense. And, and may I remind you, Timothy was Paul's most prized pupil. They had this relationship of, of almost like a father-son relationship. Like, he's not going to give him multiple categories of things. The other thing, though, to consider, and unfortunately one that is most often abused in Scripture, is the specific language that is used in reading the text. And this is critical when you consider these types of things. Again, notice the audience. So the, the evidence given is that while well, Paul is writing to the overseers and to the deacons, well, actually, his first words are to the saints, to all the saints in Jesus Christ, along with the overseers and deacons. He's writing to everyone, not just a specific party. The church is addressed, not just its pastors. And even in Philippians 4, in this passage, like there is no language at all in the Greek to assume or to indicate that any specific office is held by these two ladies. They're not called elders. They're not called deacons. They are called by their names, and that is it. And so it's unreasonable, and it's a blind guess to assume any sort of office for these ladies, because it's just not here in the text. That's called eisegesis. That's putting your own spin and interpretation on God's word, and it's dangerous. We cannot do it. We have to read his word as it is, as it presents itself. And even, even more so, like Paul names a companion, right? He says there in three, he says, I ask you, true companion, that word companion in the Greek means colleague or yoke fellow. So not only is he not naming an office for these ladies, he is naming a person who is a colleague, someone who is like Paul, someone who shares in Paul's experience, someone who shares in Paul's role. 
And so he's not even given a title to the ladies. In fact, he has asked them to submit under a third party that is titled as a, a colleague or a yoke fellow. Do you see the difference there? We're not going to harp on the, the doctrines of egalitarianism and complementarianism. But again, this has been so divisive in churches and unfortunately plagues congregations today. And I bring it out and mention it only because I want us to know that we cannot read Scripture through our own interpretation. We must read it how it is written and how it is, and how it is understood. And God's Word has stated that women are not office holders of pastor or elder or overseer. Now, they can be deacons. We can make a case for that. They can serve in the church. We can certainly make a case for that. And, and ladies, hear me this morning. Whether you're here, whether you're watching, wherever you'll listen to this message, like, hear me this morning. Ladies, we need you. Like, you have such an important role in the church. It may not to be standing in the pulpit preaching and proclaiming. It may not to be pastor. But gosh, we need you. Like, in fact, I'll even so go so far as to say this. Like, if you look at church congregations today, the majority of them, the overwhelming majority of them is women. Like, where are the men in churches today? Like, what an indictment it is on men that you find more women serving than you do men. Like, we need you, ladies. We need you. You build us up. You encourage us. You help us. You serve us. You offer a perspective that we just won't understand as men. But please, please do not manipulate and mar God's word. In Genesis 3, as Adam and Eve sin, and God kind of gives their consequences of their sin, one of the things that is stated is that women will pine after man. That, that meaning that, that there's always going to be this kind of wrestle and struggle among, amongst the genders. And we've seen it played out in our world today through uh, aggressive, militant feminism that, that women can do everything men can do. That's why the transgender movement is such a, a big deal right now, that there is no gender, there is just human beings. And we can be and do whatever we want to be and do. Recognize God has created us beautifully, man and woman. He's given us equality in our creation, but there are distinct roles in which we live and work and participate in the faith. And again, like, this isn't the point of the passage, but it is a significant part of the passage because if we miss this, we miss the, the beauty of the relationship of the church and what God has for it. And so just to be clear, Redeemer Church, we are complementarian, joyfully complementarian. 
We affirm God's word when it calls men to take up the responsibility. And, and let's just be understanding, like, that is not a light responsibility. But he calls men to take up the responsibility to be shepherds and overseers of the church. And ladies, your role is to support and participate in that role. And I need you. I desperately, desperately need you. And so as we conclude, like, what do we do with all this? Like, what do we do with, like, it's three little verses. What do we do with all of that? We've said it a few times, but let me just reiterate again Paul's charge in chapter 2. We must have unity amongst the body rooted in Jesus with one heart, one mind, one focus. We must. Or we will not go any further than the squabbling and the bickering that so easily comes about amongst church bodies. Fighting amongst ourselves solves nothing. And it damages the church. And when we read God's word through our own lens and not through the lens that is meant to be read, when we apply our own subjective interpretation to it, not the objective truth in which it is presented. We find issues that come up. We need to be careful about how we interact with each other. We need to be careful about how we converse with one another. We need to be careful about how we converse with each other about others. Don't gossip. Don't spread slander. If there's an issue, go to that person and let it be settled and reconciled in Jesus. And if you need help, ask. Don't be afraid to go to the body and say, I need help. I need some, I need some wisdom here because I'm not seeing something. And ladies, we thank you. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for the roles in which you play. Thank you. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that you would, again, transform us by your word. God, that we would find it to be helpful to us. God, that we would find it to be life to us. Father, I ask that you would just do a work amongst us, that we would be so unified as a church that there wouldn't be even the possibility of dissension here. Father, that through our theology, through our doctrine, through our practice, through our method, God, through our life, the world would know that Redeemer Church is about Jesus and nothing else. Father, I pray for maybe someone within the hearing of my voice that doesn't know you, that can't claim the 
the, the grace and mercy that you've given them because they've not repented of their sin. They don't know what it is we're even talking about. They hear things like this and they, they go, what does all that mean? God, I ask that you would help them know their sin. God, that they would know that today they can have salvation and experience that grace like they've never experienced before. Father, I ask that you would convict them, that you will reveal what it is they need to repent of, and that they will do it. God, that they'll seek out the, the fellowship and, and the, the, the life that can exist within the church. God, that they will come to know you and grow in you. Father, give us the, the humility to ask for help when we need it. Father, give us the, the, the meekness to know when we're troubled. And God, I just ask again that you would be with us as we seek to do your will and be your church in this community. We love you and we thank you. Father, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.